right, morning everyone. Sometimes a church has people in it that are just undeniable leaders. Uh, those people that are so filled with passion and energy and the spirit that people around them go, yeah man, you, you got it. And they can spur us ordinary people on and empower us, and that's awesome. But if you feel that you aren't like that, uh, it can be tempting, tempting to say, well, they'll be faithful in these big, impressive things, and I'll be faithful in my little life here. The early church had two big leaders like that. Acts 6-7 to tells the story of Stephen, who's kind of the first of the second-generation church leaders, right? He's not an apostle, but he's the first guy to emerge that is kind of a force to be reckoned with. Very impressive guy. And he'll eventually become the first martyr. Approving of his death is Saul, who will come to the Lord in Acts 9 and become Paul, probably the most influential of the second-generation church leaders. But nestled in between these two is a guy named Philip. Philip isn't really as significant as the other two. At least we don't talk about him as much. But I think he's kind of the connective tissue that binds them together. The narrative of Acts, right here anyway, goes from Stephen to Philip to Paul. And his faithfulness and initiative is something that I think we should try to imitate. He's introduced here as one of those people that is being scattered by the persecution of Saul. But while that's the base motivation, um, they're not being spread just out of pure persecution. I know it's tempting to think that way, but part of what Luke is trying to emphasize here is that these believers are actually on the offensive. 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 Fernando writes that Luke could have used the general term for scattering, but chose instead to use a word, diaspero, sounds like diaspora, that means to scatter as seed is scattered on the ground. Why do you spread seed? So that something grows. That's what the church is doing here. These believers are spreading, and as they spread, they're spreading the way. And no one is doing that better than our guy Philip. Philip has gone to Samaria. Now, this is pretty key. Uh, I'm not sure that you guys remember the Jews' relationship with the Samaritans in the first century, but I would describe it as not good. The Jews saw the Samaritans, honestly, as like half-breeds, people that had mingled with other cultures and turned their backs on God and Judaism, and that wasn't even totally true. The Samaritans did hold to the Torah, and they were awaiting a coming Messiah. Remember the story of Jesus with the Samaritan woman at the well? She's waiting for the Christ. And she finds him. And part of the reason that they're there in the first place in that story is that Jesus is trying to show the disciples that he cared about even the people that they hated. And they did. There was bad blood between them. That is where Philip has gone. He's the first person that left Jerusalem to spread the gospel of, Je to spread the gospel of Jesus, at least according to Luke. And that's, you know, it's not quite another country, but it basically is. So guess what that makes him? The first missionary. I'm rolling with that. We think of Paul, right, as this first great missionary. And he definitely does come in and take to new heights what Philip is starting here. But Philip's the one starting it. And not only is he going to a new place to spread the word, but he's going to a place that the Jews hated. He's not going to a neutral place. He's going to a negative place. Not a neutral place, a negative place, right? It's not like he's going to, like, you know, Greece, like a place that the Jews didn't really have any feelings for one way or the other. He's going to an actively antagonistic place. And while my main theme today is on Philip as the agent of the Lord that's moving, that's mobile, he's out there, 
My second theme is a major one in Acts just all the way through, the fact that the outsiders are in. We see this over and over, and we'll continue to, but I can't not highlight it. We see it just in the fact that Philip's going there to Samaria. The geographical outsiders are in. So Philip goes of his own accord to Samaria, and he's preaching the gospel there. And the Spirit's moving in power, and people are coming to the Lord. And remember, at least from what we see, the Lord did not call Philip here specifically. He chose to come here. But the Lord is now kind of endorsing his decision and showing that he'll work through Philip. And here, in the midst of the Spirit moving in power and people coming to faith, we meet the man who will define the first half of Philip's story, Simon the Sorcerer, which is a sick name at first glance. But if you think about it for more than a second, that presents some serious problems. And this will be a quick sidebar, but it's part of the story, so we need to address it. Sorcery means that he's been tapping into a spiritual world for profit. And it's kind of a fascinating situation, so it's tempting to get caught in the weeds here, but I don't really know what that magic looked like aside from being outside of God's kingdom. And maybe that's all I need to know. What's actually important here is not that he practiced magic, but what he gained from practicing magic. Verse 9 to 11 says that he amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great, and they all paid attention to him from the least to the greatest, saying this man is the power of God that's called great. And they paid attention to him because for a long time he had amazed them with his magic. Amazed, paid attention, paid attention, amazed. That's the life that Simon lived. Sounds awesome. And Philip comes and he takes it all away. Philip's preaching of the word leads to people abandoning Simon's cheap imitation for the real thing. And he takes it pretty well at first, but when he sees Peter and John lay hands on people to receive the Spirit, his old ways come roaring back. He tries to buy the ability to do this for money. Fernando writes that he sought God's power without any apparent interest in developing a relationship with God. He wanted the power without the relationship. He's trying to synthetically recreate being an apostle. I'll, I'll make it on my own terms. I want to have this power and this position. He still wants to amaze and to be paid attention. Now, the story of Ananias and Sapphira was in our text last week, and we didn't really talk about it, but I think that these two stories are very tied together. In each one, a person attempts to use what the world finds valuable, money, to gain a seat in what God finds valuable, the kingdom. And both times, they have to be shut down vehemently, as soon as possible. The story of Ananias and Sapphira seems harsh to some. It is. And Peter kind of yells at Simon here, it's true. But it doesn't take long for money and the desires of the world to come creeping into the church. And both times, it needs to be stopped as soon as possible. Adding worldly status and desire and throwing wealth around as an extension of power is the complete opposite of what the church was supposed to be about. The kingdom of heaven is not about exchanging money for goods and services. It's about using the gifts that God's given you to serve him and to draw near to him and to love those around you. Simon's response here is almost on the way to a works-based salvation. Let me buy my way in. But it can only come through the grace of God. One commentary I read said that Peter's response here is essentially to hell with you and your money, which is incredibly strong. Like, that's strong language, I know. But it's not wrong. That's literally what he's saying, and that's kind of, we're told, that's the right reaction to have to it. 
Anyway, that's the end of the Simon tangent. And you might have been asking yourself, wait, why are Peter and John here in the first place? That's a great question. That gets us back on track with Philip. See, Peter and John are here to validate the ministry of one of their deacons. Philip was not one of the 12 apostles. He was just a follower of Jesus. And yet he's the one that's taken these massive strides into uncharted territory for the kingdom. I cannot stress this enough. He has beaten everyone in the church out here. He's the first one. And it's not like he was sent by the Jerusalem council. Verse 14 reads, When the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Spirit. They didn't even know what was going on out here, at least at first. Philip has taken a bold, risky step forward, and that's paid off with the Spirit doing amazing things in Samaria. And when Peter and John show up, they affirm him and bless him in his work. Another commentary I read said that an abiding principle we might learn from this is that good leaders are open to change that comes from younger creative people, and after giving it proper thought, encourage such change and even learn from it. I, I feel a little weird <laughs> saying this as a member of the younger generation up here, but I think it's true nonetheless. Peter and John have something to learn from Philip here, and we'll see what they learn in a perfect final note to their section. As much as I've been championing Philip as this pioneer, this trailblazer, it's not like no follower of God has ever been to Samaria. Guess who was in Samaria not that long before Philip? It's the Sunday school answer. You can shout it out. <laughs> Jesus was! And not just Jesus, but he took Peter and John with him too. So they've been there before also. Not that long ago. And it was in Samaria that Jesus said, for the old, a quote, for here the old saying holds true, one sows and another reaps. People believed in him while he was there, too, but in a sense, Philip is out here reaping what Jesus was sowing. He's taken this initiative without orders, and he now gets the blessing of being a part of the direct ministry of Jesus. How cool is that? He's literally a part of Jesus' earthly ministry, even if he wasn't there at the time. They're connected in this way. And Peter and John, verse 25 tells us that when they had testified and spoken the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel to the many villages of the Samaritans. They make their way back to Jerusalem, preaching in all the villages along the way. So let me now turn to the disciples, specifically John's last encounter in Samaria. Luke writes in Luke 9.54 that some Samaritans did not accept Jesus. So James and John's reaction was to ask, quote, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? Jesus obviously rebuked them here, um, but they wanted to annihilate these towns. They wanted to call down fire on them. And now look at John. He's going from ready to damn them to going from town to town to town, preaching the good news of Jesus to people that two years ago he would have considered subhuman. Isn't that a cool turnaround? That obviously wouldn't have happened without God at work in his life. But it also wouldn't have happened without Philip calling him out there in the first place. Philip's choice to get out there has not made him this, you know, great figure that everyone's like, wow, Philip, he's so amazing. But he's capitalizing on what Jesus did before him, and he's laying the groundwork for the workers to come after him. He's part of the movement in a real tangible way. So, Philip's story has two main sections to it. That was the first one, Philip and Samaria. Now, 
here's the second one. Philip meets the Ethiopian. Uh, this encounter has some familiarity with the first one. I mean, it's still Philip, but it's different in some very interesting ways. Our transitional verse says, Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Rise and go toward the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. So let's stop here for a moment. What's already different about this one, uh, this story? An angel is talking to Philip. This has never happened before. At least we haven't been told that it has. For the first time, the Lord is giving very direct, very explicit instructions to Philip, even if they don't have a lot of information. Now, it might be kind of tempting to look at this and go, why won't the Lord give me instructions like this? That would make this whole following business a lot easier. It would. There's something very appealing about a passage of scripture where someone is grabbed by the shoulders by the Lord and shaken and called into ministry. At least for me, there is. I feel like the go-to passages here are stuff like the call of Moses in Exodus 3, right? The burning bush. It's undeniable. I don't want to go. I don't want to go. Go, go, go. Or uh, the call of Isaiah in Isaiah 6. That's our uh, call to worship this morning. The throne of God descending from heaven and Isaiah going blown on his back and going, here I am, Lord, send me. Or even the call of Saul in the very next chapter on the road to Damascus, the thunder of God knocking him off his horse. Each of these stories feature a person content in their status quo, happy with their life as it is, and God stepping in in absolute splendor and majesty and forever altering their life. That sounds difficult and incredible, right? That sounds like getting swept away from the mundanity of normal life into serving the kingdom. I honestly think the appeal here is similar to something like in a kid's seri- a book series like Harry Potter or Percy Jackson. These young adult fantasies where a seemingly normal kid gets a letter in the mail that tells them they're actually very special. They're the most special person in the universe. And they need to leave this life that they hate anyway and go have an adventure, right? That's not so different. Particularly when you're young, to dream of getting a knock on the door that sweeps you away. I remember praying, and I think this might have been right around when I graduated, or maybe when I was in Costa Rica, a prayer that was essentially, Lord, tell me what to do. I wanted that call of Isaiah experience. I remember praying, this I remember pretty much word for word, Lord, it can be literally anything, just tell me something. (laughs) Give me undeniable direction. That's what I wanted. And at that time, I would have read this story of Philip and seen the Lord go, head to this road and await further instructions. And I would have been like, why does he get that experience and I don't? I'm exaggerating a little here, uh, but not that much. It's a tricky thing to try and figure out what you want your life to be as a young person. And it doesn't seem like too much to ask for the Lord's direction. But what I would have missed at that time was the passage that we just looked at that came just before this. Philip went to Samaria, not because the throne of God came down from the sky and commanded him to go. It wasn't like that for him either. This will be me guessing a little bit, but here's why I think he ended up there. He had to leave Jerusalem, right? Saul's going door to door, um, grabbing believers, persecuting them, throwing them in prison. He has to go somewhere. And while the other believers maybe stayed around in Judea, Philip might have reflected on Jesus and how Jesus went to Samaria when everyone else went around it and how the woman at the well encounter brought a whole village to faith. 
And he might have thought back on Jesus' last words seven chapters earlier. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And he might have thought, well, I'm leaving Jerusalem and others are in Judea. I guess I'll go to Samaria. And maybe he shared this idea with others and they encouraged him in this. Peter and John eventually do. My point is that Philip wasn't told directly by God to go to Samaria, but he was a person influenced and shaped by God. And as a God-fearing person, he chose to go to Samaria, and it was a good choice because of who he was and how he let the Lord shape him. And after he's been moving and working, he does get this hyper-specific call from the Lord. And I'm not saying that Samaria was an audition at all. It was already the real deal. But maybe the fact that he was already in the thick of it, that he was proving, not to God, but to himself, that he was ready to go and serve is why he got the call. A pretty influential book in my life when I was younger was God Smuggler by Brother Andrew. Uh, I promised that it wasn't just that he was named Andrew um, that drew me in. It was that he was named Andrew and it said Smuggler on it. That's, that's what got me in there. Um, it's the story of this man who smuggles Bibles across the Iron Curtain into the Soviet Union. And there's this scene toward the end of the book where Andrew's ministry has grown successful enough that he speaks about his story at different conferences and things. And here's this quote that I'm going to read. Fairly often, at the close of a talk, I'd find three or four eager young men standing around at the back. Brother Andrew, can I join you in your work behind the Iron Curtain? God has told me, too, to preach the gospel there. Others were probably a little more honest. It sounds so exciting, they would say. I'd like to come just to carry your suitcases. But I never felt free to continue these conversations. It wasn't as though I had a trick or a system for getting across these borders again and again that I could pass on to ensure the safety of, their, of others. It was no cleverness or experience of mine that had prevented disaster so far. Only the fact that every morning of every trip, I consciously placed myself in God's hands and tried and so far as possible, not to take a step outside his will. But these are not actions that one person can take for another. And so I would usually say, well, if I meet you behind the Iron Curtain, then by all means, let's talk some more. And that would be the last I would hear of them. When I read this the first time, those young guys are probably where I would have identified. Um, it seems like a great young adult fantasy novel moment, right? To, to leave your static life to get swept away into smuggling and intrigue. But as Brother Andrew lays out here, that's not what serving the Lord is. Right after this section, he actually goes on to, he does team up with someone, uh, someone who was already serving the Lord in real practical ways, who was already doing ministry. He'd already made the decision to go to Samaria, as it were. And they team up and work with great success together because they're both already active. A person can't just sit around and go, I hope God will take me somewhere. I hope God will take me somewhere. And then never actually do anything about the opportunities that God's placed right in front of you. We as believers are called to be mobile. We're called to be in action. That applies to all of us. Um, and not all of us just got back from Angola like Bob or, or heading to Northern Ireland and Lesotho like I'm planning on. But that doesn't let any of us off the hook, right? Would Philip have gotten the call to go to the Ethiopian if he hadn't already been in Samaria? That's kind of my thesis question here. What do you think? 
Do you think that Philip would have gotten the call to go to the Ethiopian if he hadn't already been in Samaria? If he just stayed in Jerusalem or Judea and, you know, just kind of hung out there? Honestly, like I've said all this stuff, but like maybe. In the next chapter, Saul will get called on his way to hunt and destroy Christians. God can call anyone from anywhere. But what did happen here is that Philip was already in Samaria when God called him to the Ethiopian. Ernie said the other day, and this is a real classic Ernie line, but I found it to be pretty profound. He said, which I always do. He said, it's hard to steer a parked car. And that seems kind of obvious, but if that ain't the truth, it doesn't take much to adjust Philip's mission because he's already in motion. It would take a lot more to send someone that wasn't actively serving, wasn't already actively looking for God's opportunities. It's hard to steer a parked car. Okay, I want to I move towards wrapping up, but before I do, we do have to actually look at the Ethiopian encounter. So the first thing that jumps out to me about this encounter is that it's maybe the easiest conversion that's ever happened. It's a layup. Philip receives direct instructions to go to the road, which he does, and then direct instructions to go to the Ethiopian's chariot, which he does. And he hears the Ethiopian reading from Isaiah, and he takes the only step of initiative that he has to in this whole story. He asks him, do you understand what you are reading? And the Ethiopian goes, I need someone to teach me. Will you please come up into this chariot? And Philip does. And the Ethiopian shows him maybe the clearest messianic prophecy in the Old Testament and asks, who is this about? It's Jesus. And after Philip explains, the Ethiopian goes, I should probably be baptized. Will you baptize me? Like, these are just falling into his lap. Philip is barely doing anything here. Um, yeah, Philip's bread. I'm, I'm sure that there are some of us in the congregation today who have never led someone to the Lord and would maybe feel very nervous about it or are very new in our faith, perhaps. But I'm pretty confident in saying that every single person here today probably could have led this Ethiopian to the Lord. Every single person here today could have done what Philip did. You have to follow two clear instructions, ask one question, and then be shown a description of Jesus and identify him as Jesus. It's one of the easiest conversion accounts I've ever seen. Why is that? All Philip really has to do is be faithful. And Fernando writes that in doing this, he discovered that the Ethiopian had been prepared by God before he even spoke to him. We too can expect this as we share Christ with others. We're just one link in what God is doing in that person's life. We're just one link in what God is doing in that person's life. Being faithful can, uh, have, can pay off in ways that we don't anticipate when we start. Philip didn't know anything about that Ethiopian. He was simply being faithful. We don't know much about him either, although we can infer a few things. Uh, number one, he's from Ethiopia. From the Jewish perspective, that makes him an outsider geographically, right? He's from a different place. He's also Ethiopian in manner, in customs, meaning that he's an outsider culturally. He's also an outsider racially. He would have had darker skin than the people from Judea. So the Jews, they had a word for someone like this, someone who was different geographically and culturally and racially, a Gentile. You've probably heard this word before. This is exactly what it means. This Ethiopian's a textbook Gentile. But it doesn't stop there because he's, re he's referred to as an Ethiopian eunuch. 
he served the queen of Ethiopia, and practice at the time dictated that he be castrated. So he was also an outsider sexually. He would have been seen by the Jews as weird and amorphous and not really a man. So he has no identity there either. So the Ethiopian's an outsider geographically, culturally, racially, sexually, and he's the first Gentile to join the Christian faith. The very first one. There's been Samaritans that have come to faith, but they don't really count as Gentiles. They're still tied to to Judaism, for better and for worse. This Ethiopian is the first Gentile to come to the Christian faith. Not Cornelius in the next chapter. It's not like it was a race, but Philip has beaten Peter and Paul to the punch here. An ordinary guy. Not an apostle, not a great figure, not this massive church leader. Simply someone willing and ready to go serve. And he gets to be a part of this. And then he's off again. The story actually ends with a wild miracle that's never replicated anywhere else. It seems that the Holy Spirit teleports Philip away. He vanishes before the Ethiopian's eyes. And the passage says that Philip found himself at Azotus. He just appeared, I guess. I don't know. But what does he do after this? As he passed through, he preached the gospel to all the towns until he came to Caesarea. There's no direct instruction here. We'll note that an angel does not appear to him and say, Philip, go preach the gospel in all these towns like I just told you to preach to that Ethiopian. He doesn't get that encounter again. Philip just looked at the opportunity in front of him and went, I should tell these people about Jesus. That's who he is. And the Ethiopian actually follows a similar trajectory. He goes on his way rejoicing. And tradition tells us that when he arrives back home, he starts the Ethiopian church. Which is pretty wild if you think about it. Because up until now, God's saving power has been either, so it seems, either for the Jews or for people that want to become Jews. They can be from other places, but they have to step into Judaism. But starting here, we see the gospel changing and affecting and including people that have no ties to Jewish identity. Something has spoken to this Ethiopian, and will go on to speak to many more, completely separate from Jewish culture. There's a real strong chance that he never came back to Judea, and yet he was just as much a believer as all those Jewish believers were. N.T. Wright writes that Luke plants this story at the heart of the moment when the gospel is starting to go out into the wider world to make it abundantly clear that wherever you go, Whatever culture you come to, whatever situation or human need, exclusion or oppression that you may find, the message of Jesus as the one in whom all the promises of God find their yes is there to meet that need. Jesus is for everyone. The gospel is for everyone. Obviously, right? And yet here it is demonstrated in a radical new way. The early church is about to find out just how serious God is about this. He's not kidding around. These are real boundaries being crossed here. And it might be worth noting that while those of every ethnicity or culture are in, that doesn't mean that those of every behavior are in. Just earlier in this chapter, Peter condemned Simon very strongly for his actions and his attitudes, right? That wasn't okay. His desire to buy his way into kingdom power was not okay. But that had everything to do with his heart posture and nothing to do with his societal standing. In fact, societal standing might lead someone to Jesus. Parsons writes that what might have drawn the Ethiopian to the Isaiah passage in the first place 
was its description of someone suffering humiliation. He might have known something about that. He says, tapenosis, I'm giving a shot at the Greek today and it's not really working, but tapenosis, or the word humiliation, that's found in the middle of the citation, was a term that refers to a social position within Mediterranean society that was severely shunned. It's not surprising that the eunuch, whose access to wealth is shaky at best, and ironically dependent on his socially debased position, should be drawn to this figure in Isaiah, who, like the eunuch, is described as being in a state of humiliation. Like many before him, and countless after, the eunuch looked at this description of Jesus and thought, oh, he understands me. He understands me in a way that actually very few people, maybe no one else does. What a powerful feeling that is. Jesus' suffering and humiliation, which at the time, he's praying, Lord, take this cup away from me if it's possible. That very suffering and humiliation leads directly to this Ethiopian coming to faith. And so, despite all of his outsidedness, he's in. Parsons continues that the Ethiopian eunuch would have been viewed by Luke's readers as sexually ambiguous, ambiguous, socially ostracized, and morally evil, greedy and cowardly. Yet when the eunuch finds water and asks, what is preventing me from being baptized? Luke's response is, nothing. Nothing prevents his entrance into the eschatological community. The church. He's in the church now. That's takeaway number one. The church is crossing line after line here. People that previously would have been excluded for multiple separate reasons are now welcomed into the faith. So, tough question, who do we exclude now? Who are our Samaritans and Ethiopians and eunuchs and sorcerers? Who would walk into our foyer at the beginning of our service and we might go, eh, the gospel's for everyone, but I don't know if the church is for you. Because we'd be so wrong in saying that. So wrong. This might seem obvious to some of Like, of course, the gospel's for all races and nationalities. We know that. But then you get into the nitty-gritty of, of what a person actually being from another culture means. Or someone who's from an entirely different tax bracket. Or someone who's an addict. Or someone whose worldview runs counter to yours. Someone who's fundamentally different. And all of a sudden, that inclusiveness can get a little harder. The Ethiopian is not asked to stop being an Ethiopian, nor is he asked to stop being a eunuch. Simon's asked not to stop being a Samaritan, but he does need to let go of his magic. So there's some wisdom required here. Some choices are outside the plan of God and need to be changed. But the person, the person and their identity is always beckoned into God's kingdom. And finally, my second takeaway goes back to this idea of Philip as a mobile missionary. The reason that God is working through Philip like this in this chapter is not that he's willing to go serve. It's not. It's that he's already going and serving. He's already on his way toward opportunities that he sees. And when he's mid-service, God nudges him one way and then another. He does get guidance, but he gets it as he goes. It's steering a moving car, not a parked one. As we look at our life before us, we might pray, Lord, show me what to do. And that's not a bad prayer to pray. I think your heart's definitely in the right place if you pray it. I've prayed that prayer many times, often pretty recently. 
But this is a thing that I've been learning, and I'm going to gently suggest that a more biblical prayer might be, Lord, guide my steps. And then take steps. And examine your steps with scripture and with prayer and with the wisdom of other believers in your life. And ask the Lord to guide your steps. And then take more steps. Don't wait for an undeniable thrown from heaven command to be honest about the source of your joy with a neighbor. You already know that God wants your neighbor to have a member of his kingdom in their life. Take that step. Don't wait for a word from God to model kindness and love and compassion for those that don't deserve it. Take that step. And this one's maybe a little out there, but don't wait for God to call you out of your comfort zone. Take a step. Undeniable words from God do happen. And when they do, we should definitely listen to them, of course. But there are going to be opportunities in front of you that a person seeking to please God should take, but God probably won't just explicitly shout them at you. He'll nudge you. Serving God doesn't often look like these grand, dramatic gestures, although it can, you know, crossing the Iron Curtain with a car full of Bibles. Serving God often looks like small, faithful acts. And if you're in a kind of stagnant place, God might call you to take a step. And you might, and that could be amazing. But if you're already taking steps, God might call you to take a leap. And if you're already leaping, God might call you to plunge into the unknown. And who knows what he might accomplish around you if you're ready to serve that way. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much for the example that we have in Scripture, not just of these great leaders and these heroes of the faith, but of, of these people that are faithful um, just in what's in front of them and that they take initiative and they go out because they know your heart, Lord. And they're trying to be like you in the small decisions as well as the big ones. We pray, Lord, that we would have the, the courage to take, to take steps and the wisdom to, uh, to be people shaped by you so that our steps are also shaped by you. We pray that you would be at work through each and every one of us, Lord, not just the, uh, the, the goers and the leaders, but everyone that's looking at their neighbor across the street and their, the people they're next to in the supermarket. We pray, Lord, that, that we would be a people that are shaped by you and taking steps that honor you. We love you a lot, Lord Jesus. We can only do this in your power. Amen. I've asked uh, Joel Hartung to join us. And uh, I've got two uh, comments here, questions. Uh, so if there's more, that means the screen still isn't working. Uh, I wonder if there is a commentary to be made about Simon the Wizard's attempt to buy power like it's some kind of formula and the modern desire to buy books, including Christian books, with formulas for success. It's <laughs> a great question. That's fantastic. <laughs> I'm going to go sit down. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, yeah, you can make that connection. Um, I feel like that's a very, yeah, what was, what was it I said, that, that the quote that I had that was Simon wanted uh, the authority of God or something to that effect without the relationship with God. That, that idea that if I, can, um, if, I can, if I can game plan this, if I can figure out my approach and, uh, and just I can break it down into real practical steps that I can replicate, 
then then it's then I've then I've cracked it. Then I don't actually need to rely on the Lord. I can rely on these steps, these these this action plan that I've made, right? Um, and that and that's just I get that temptation. I do, but that's <laughs> that's not quite the same thing as as Philip and Peter and John just completely letting the Lord direct them. Yeah, I don't know, eh? That's what do you think, Joel? Uh, sometimes self help books. Maybe they're motivated by a desire to control. Yeah, I, there's been lots of big decisions in my life that have been guided by, and I've always felt that when I've been intentional with God, that he's helped steer that. So mm -hmm. I guess reading those books with a heart, knowing that you're not putting everything into what you're reading, but just that's helping guide you or you're trying to throw stuff against God and, and trying to find that right answer is... So I guess your intentions of making sure that you're still searching God instead of putting all your faith in what you're reading, but it's not bad to read things from different viewpoints and, and try to gather the information. Yeah, there's a movie line, change is good, donkey. But, but, I, think, but I think as long as I can control change, I'm okay with it. But living sure. with an open hand, that's tough. Let's be honest, that's tough. I don't know why you didn't have an altar call today, Andrew, because, <laughs> I, I mean, you pushed us to the edge here. Mm. Um, he's in control, not us. Mm. And, and, and there's risk in stepping forward. It's like, like we're back mm. to bungee jumping. I don't want to. Mm. Yeah. Right? Got one it's, more. Oh, go ahead. Like, this, is, this is an interesting one. We'll probably talk about this next week. Who are our Gentiles or dogs today? I mean, you dealt with this whole business of our attitudes toward other people, who's in, who's out. How do we, how do we keep the outsiders from accessing the gospel? Mm. I know. And, go ahead. <laughs> no, well, I was just going to add to it, and specifically that idea that I think I, I said that, like, well, we would say the gospel's for everyone, but will we say our church is for everyone? Like that's, that's uh, some of us would say, oh, absolutely, yes to the first. Of course the gospel's for everyone. But then when that has personal consequences, that all of a sudden is a harder, the harder decision to make. Yeah. Sorry, go ahead. And I think, so God sends some people to Ireland. Um, there is more, like when I'm hiring people, especially entry-level people, it's unreal how many people... You, you think we're in Steinbeck and we're in this faith-based community and it is the percentages are higher than elsewhere in Canada, but there is, I can interview a hundred kids and I will ask like about volunteers and they have never, they don't know anything about the Bible, anything about church, have never been in church and you just think like, wow, we're in Steinbeck. There is a lot of people here that we need to share the gospel with. We don't have to go out to so wherever God has called us. There is, there is those people that need to be saved right right in our own community, right in our coworkers working right beside us. Back to preaching, your job is your fob, your neighborhood. Mm -hmm. uh, one more, and then we're going to get the praise band to come up, unless this thing pings again. The church gospel is for everyone, but is there a point where behavior overtakes that acceptance? Yeah, I mean, that's why I think it's so... Um it's a great, in the midst of such a radical, everyone's in, everyone's in passage, like the Ethiopian 
you know, 10 years ago, it would have been unacceptable that this person would have been in a Jewish community of faith. And now here's this, this radical act of inclusion. And yet it is immediately right before is the story of Simon where Peter goes, if you don't change this, you're out. Like, sorry, but like, this is not the, this is not the heart of, this is not the heart of God. And this is not what the church is about. Like, and I think it's, I think it's, I think it's not accidental that those are back to back. That there's this story of, of every person can be in, but not every person's, oh, how do I phrase this? Every person can be in, but not every decision, every decision-making process that every person goes through would allow them to be in, I guess. Like, there needs to be change in order for a person to be a part of that kind of community. It's, it's, very, it's fascinating, and I would have almost liked to do a whole thing on Simon there, but I didn't have time. But that idea that, that he is, for all intents and purposes, it seems like he's in in the same way that every other Samaritan is at the start. Philip, like he comes to faith, and he's following Philip around. If that ended, the story ended right there, we would have gone, well, this guy's a believer. And yet then he has this big crisis where his old way of thinking comes back, and Peter kind of has to go, you got to snap out of this. Like, this is, this is not... Um, this is not where you, maybe not even where you were before. So, yeah. It's Joel, what do you do with this question? Is there a point where behavior well, overtakes w- acceptance? I think fruits of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience. Mm-hmm. I, when I, we led worship at a Bible camp years ago, and there was the fruits of the Spirit were a song, and you'd bob up and down. And I think yeah. about that often, those kids singing. But if we don't, when I reflect on myself, if I, the first four, love, joy, peace, patience. If I don't have any of those at work or with my wife or with my kids, I know that I, I'm not in a good spot right then. Mm. And I need to get, in, get into God and try to connect with that and show that. So I don't know at what point do I lose, do I lose my salvation over some of the choices I'm making or how I'm living. That's a whole nother, that's like a 10 sermon series. But um, I just, when I reflect on myself, I want to make sure that I have those fruits of the spirits and I know I'm connected and that God is, God is really a part of my life at that point. And it might also be worth noting that every single like, like process of discipline that's laid out in the New Testament of like if a person, you know, in the church, is, every single one of those, the, the goal at every single stage is to get that person back in. And to like, exclusion is always like, at the very, very, very possible end, and it's, and it's only in, like, the most extreme of cases. The goal is always for, like, well, sometimes a little change needs to happen, but then we want to welcome this person back in again. That that's the, kind of the heart of the church. I know God's, God's direction for us, I often think, is like a choose-your-own-adventure book that I used to read as a kid. And when you're keen to his leading and you and he puts something out and you make that right decision it can set off just a whole series of events that can make your life a lot easier or or mm-hmm. or he has to take you a long way around so mm-hmm. just our our understanding or is listening to him to try to take those right steps at that time can can make things a lot easier yeah. i think one one final comment i'd like to make about that question uh, i think we should be clear that every single human being is an image bearer, okay? That's number one. Every single human being is an image bearer made in the image of God. And number two, God loves and wants to redeem and have a relationship with every single human being. So I look at whoever I'm in front of with that beginning premise and foundation. 
that doesn't mean that every behavior is okay. Mm. But I can love a person without agreeing with their behavior. Mm. And, and I don't think that I can win someone if I don't start there loving the person and recognizing that they have worth as an image bearer. Yeah. Uh, so, so behavior, that's, that's another thing. And, and at the end of the day, yeah, we have ideas about what's okay and what isn't and all of that. But at the end of the day, we don't know whether Ananias and Sapphira were saved and got in or not. Like the passage yeah. isn't clear. I, I can't say this person is going to heaven and this person isn't. That's God's decision, mm. not mine. My, my role is to love and respect and honor everybody yeah. and, then, and then be Christ mm. to them. Yeah, I mean, we don't really know what happens <coughs> to Simon either. And right. yet, I would be exactly. very confident in saying that the Ethiopian was just as sinful as Simon was and that God loved him just as much. Yep. Good, thank you. Uh, praise band, why don't you come back up? Thanks, Joel and...